everybody. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss all the kids. They can go and enjoy Sunday school. I want to take the opportunity to welcome all of our visitors, all of our guests, longtime attenders, members. I'm so glad that each and every one of you are here. And if this is your first or possibly second week here at Covenant Church, I'd invite you to take a a brown card at the back, fill it out, put it in the black basket, and take a, a beautiful Covenant mug. And as I've said before, it'll make you holier, and it gives us free advertising. The first one isn't true, but the second one is. So... My name is Ben Espinoza. I serve as the pastor of community life here at Covenant Church. And and this morning, before I get into my message, I just want to share a couple of very important announcements as everyone's uh, preparing for the Christmas season. It's it's not beginning to feel a lot like Christmas, but we need to prepare for it. So anyways, the first announcement is this, is that we've invited Brookside Church to partner with us to put on a Christmas Eve service this year. And this is something that we do every single year because this is a body that believes that partnering together with local churches exemplifies the kingdom of God in our midst. There's no better way for us to demonstrate our common mission to make the gospel known in this community than by partnering together in services such like this, such as this. So these services will be uh, Christmas Eve, 5 p.m. and 6.30 p.m., and, uh, and you won't want to miss uh, what we have planned. And the second announcement is this, is that on Sunday the 27th, we will be canceling our Sunday morning service, which is a change from what, from what we've done in the past. But with so many staff and leaders and families out of town, we figured that this was the right decision to make. So we encourage you to take the time to spend time with your friends, with your families, pray, read scripture together, and, and have a lovely time of worship. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be continuing our series called Glory Revealed, where we uh, talk about how God has revealed his glory to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And just to recap, a couple weeks ago, I talked about how Jesus' birth reveals the glory of God in a myriad of ways, such as reversing the order of the world and demonstrating his power in humbling the proud and exalting the humble. And last week I talked about how John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah and how we can exemplify the spirit of John the Baptist this Advent season. And this morning we're going to look at another character uh, in the Christmas story that gets a lot of attention during this time of year, but we kind of ignore the rest of the year, and that's the figure of Mary. And interestingly enough, I just found out last night that National Geographic named Mary as the most powerful woman on the planet. And there's going to be a documentary on Nat Geo tonight called The Cult of the Virgin Mary. I may or may not watch it depending on how many episodes of the Great British Baking Show I need to watch tonight. (laughs) Oh, did I say that out loud? (laughs) Now, depending on what kind of Christian tradition that you grew up in, you either heard or saw a lot of Mary, or you're like... Who? My grandma, she was this, she's this kind, sweet lady. She loves Jesus more than anyone. She has pictures and statues of Mary all over her house. And every time I would go over to her house as a kid, she'd show me pictures of Mary and tell me how much she meant to her and uh, how she'd be lost without Mary. And after that, I would go home. I would ask my parents about why my grandma loved Mary so much. And they'd say, well, we kind of disagree with your grandma, Ben. And I remember growing up in the church that I did, whenever the pastor or my Sunday school teacher would get to the topic of Mary, there was almost a little bit of disdain while, while they'd be talking about her. They would make it a point to say, well, there's absolutely nothing at all special about Mary, so don't get any ideas. 
So when you look at the spectrum of Christendom, Mary really is sort of a a divisive figure. But this morning, I'm going to look at the figure of Mary from Scripture. And I want to show how she serves as a prime example of the power and the glory of God, not only by her humble and her worshipful spirit, but also by the way God uses her to bring his Messiah into the world. Now we're going to be bouncing around Scripture a little bit uh, between Luke chapters 1 and 2. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me there. This will be the first, set, uh, first of a set of three longer passages that we're going to be looking at this morning. But before we dig into God's Word, will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds to the different truths that you want us to learn this morning. I pray that you'll make Christ so real to us and so marvelous and glorious to us that we won't want to worship or think about anybody else. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So before we look at this passage, I want to say a couple words about Luke's gospel. We looked at Matthew's gospel a couple weeks ago. We looked at Mark's gospel last week, and this morning we're going to be looking at the gospel of Luke. And Luke is unique among the four gospel accounts because Luke really wants to emphasize the physicality of Jesus Christ. But not only this, he wants to give a detailed account of the life of Jesus. He says this at the very beginning of his gospel. So that's why Luke is so detailed, because he wants to give you the hard facts about who Jesus is. So Luke says this in, uh, in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So a couple things are going on here. You know, we learned last week that John the Baptist is the son of Elizabeth, who was pregnant at just about the same time Mary was. And we know that it was the angel Gabriel who visited Elizabeth and told her that she would give birth to John. And in our passage here, the angel Gabriel uh, continues his angelic tour by reaching out to a virgin named Mary who was engaged to a guy named Joseph. Now, as I said a couple weeks before, generally when you see Mary portrayed in movies or or television or in paintings or whatever, she's usually portrayed as this 30-year-old woman. But really, you got to imagine... Women were married by the age of 13 or 14. So this is a little girl that we're dealing with here. So a little kid who has found favor with God and with whom the Lord is present. And Luke tells us what else goes on between Mary and the angel. It says that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now remember, anyone who's ever encountered an angel is scared to death, except for Mary. All it says is that she's kind of worried about what he's going to say. Because if you look at these angelic encounters all throughout the Old Testament, half of them are very positive, announcements of good things. But the other half are very negative, announcements of destruction and death. But Mary doesn't scare at his presence. She's more concerned about the purpose of his visit. And I think that tells you a little bit bit about uh, Mary and her character. But I'll keep reading. It says, but the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So Gabriel repeats himself to Mary, and he says that she has found favor with God. Now, the interesting part is that it doesn't say that Mary's found favor with God because of something she's done. Gabriel never says, Mary, you found favor with God because blank. All the angel has to say is you have found favor with God. No reason at all needs to be given here. Now, we can speculate as to why, but I think the point that Luke wants to get across implicitly is that God will have favor upon whom he will have favor. He will have grace upon whom he will have grace. God knows what he's doing when he tells Mary through the angel that she will bear a son. However, I think there is a reason that God has favored Mary. And I think it's implied throughout this whole narrative, but we'll get to that in a bit. But we see that Gabriel has told her about this baby, that he will be great. He'll be called son of the most high. He will reign over this entire world forever. Think about the weight that that would have on a little girl like Mary. That the Messiah that your people have been waiting for for thousands upon thousands of years is finally going to come to this earth and you're going to carry him in your womb for nine months. Imagine the weight that puts on someone like Mary who has very little to be proud of. This is a little peasant girl, least among the least, and yet God has chosen to bestow upon her this great honor. So put yourself in Mary's sandals for a moment and imagine what you might say. You might say, well, great, or maybe this is all a dream, like Inception style, dream within a dream. But Mary's response is a little bit different. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? So instead of freaking out, Mary basically says, so that's great and all, but you do know how this whole baby-making thing works, right? And her response kind of mirrors Zechariah's response in the previous chapter. He says, how can it be? I'm just an old man, and my wife's old too. And remember, Gabriel's reaction to Zechariah was this. I'm an angel. I know God. I see God. I know what God is up to. And because of your doubting hearts, I'm going to shut your mouth. But Gabriel doesn't respond this way to Mary. Instead, he says this. He says, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Now, notice how Gabriel reacts differently to Mary. He answers her, and he doesn't condescend her. And I think there are a few reasons that he answers her this way. And the first reason is that an old man, a priest of Israel, who has a lot to be proud of, who really should have more faith than a 13-year-old, right? I mean, that's the logic of the world. An old man should have more faith than a little girl. But that's not the logic of the kingdom of God, and that's not the logic of the angel here. I think Gabriel knows that this child, Mary, has more faith in God than an old man who serves as a priest. I think another reason, too, is look at how polar opposite Zechariah and Mary are. Zechariah is a priest revered among the people, an old man, a servant of the Lord. Mary's a poor little kid. But not only this, Zechariah is a man. 
and Mary is a girl. And back in those days, you had men who were at the top of the social ladder, the cultural hierarchy, and girls were just a couple notches from the very, very bottom. And Gabriel shuts the mouth of the man, and he opens up the mind of the girl. He lowers the exalted, and he exalts the lowly. And that's a theme that continues throughout this whole entire narrative, which we'll see in a bit. But there's a third reason why I think Gabriel reacts this way toward Mary. And it's because Gabriel knows that this is the woman that God has chosen to carry his Messiah into the world. Remember, Gabriel is an angel who stands before Almighty God day and night and to whom God has revealed just a sliver of his great plan. And Gabriel knows that the Son of God, whom he knows personally, who he has seen in all of his glory, will make his way into the womb of this woman. And because of this, Gabriel treats her with gentleness, respect, and reverence. It's a complete reversal than the things that would have gone on in those days. And check out Mary's response. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. She graciously aligns herself with what God is going to do in her life. Now, what's interesting about this entire passage is that Mary is called a virgin three times. Once by the angel Gabriel, I mean, twice by the angel Gabriel, and once uh, by Mary herself. And the reason for this, as most of you know, this is to fulfill a prophecy in Isaiah uh, seven fourteen. It says, Behold, a virgin will conceive, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Now, that's important because this is one of those signs that God gives to us because we often fail to see when God moves. But it's also important because the Messiah is the Son of God, and therefore he needs to have a divine heritage. And for Jesus to be 100% God and 100% man, he needed to be born of a virgin. So it was a sign of the Messiah, and it was just the way things needed to be. So Mary humbly accepts all the angel says to her. And the next few verses says that Mary would would go on to visit her relative Elizabeth. We saw last week about how once Mary gave her greeting, entered into Elizabeth's house, John the Baptist leapt in Elizabeth's womb. And that whole exchange takes us up to a very special set of verses known as Mary's Song, or it's most commonly referred to as the Magnificat. And it's called that simply because that's the, that's the first verse in Latin, Magnificat. And a lot of Christian traditions sing this during Advent because it really is a hymn of praise and of worship and of glorifying God. What I love about these verses is that it gives you a glimpse into what Mary is thinking during this whole narrative. She's been given the news that she is the virgin prophesied in Isaiah who will give birth to the Messiah. She's talked to an angel and she's been given praise by her relative Elizabeth. And as we look at these few verses, remember what I've said the past couple weeks is that surrounding these messianic birth narratives, you see a reversal of worldly order. Check it out. It says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So Mary begins by talking a little bit about what God has done for her. She could have a little bit of pride here. And after all, she is God's chosen vessel 
to bear and bring his Messiah into the world. But she doesn't have hardly any pride. Instead, she focuses on what God has done for her, giving him all the glory. And then she moves on to describe the character of God in really rich ways. It says, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, as you read this, you're probably imagining Mary speaking these things softly, quietly, while she humbly ponders all the things that God has done for her. But that's the furthest thing from the truth here. This is a hymn that subverts the entire order of the known world. Mary rejoices in how the Lord reverses the order of everything. He brings down the proud. He exalts the lowly. He feeds the hungry, and he sends away the rich. He makes the virgin and the barren conceive, and he keeps his promises when all other gods fail. This is a hymn of glory preached by a little girl. And it's a shame that we here in the American church have relegated Mary to the category of humble peasant girl because she's got fire in her mind and fire in her heart. And the interesting thing is that some worldly governments have recognized the power that comes with this hymn. In fact, both Guatemala and Argentina have actually banned the public recitation of this passage at different points during their histories because it became a rallying cry for the oppressed Think uh, Katniss Hunger Games style. You might be thinking, well, Ben, that's probably just a bunch of people twisting and bending Scripture to suit their own political agenda. But that's not the case. The great Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this great German theologian who was martyred during World War II, killed by Hitler, had this to say about the Magnificat. He said, The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song is a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. These are the tones of the women prophets of the Old Testament that now come to life in Mary's mouth. So this isn't poor, lowly Mary right here. This is Mary the prophet proclaiming the truth that God has revealed to her. And the truth is that the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah and all of his glory signals the beginning of an entirely new world order where the agenda of sinful mankind is thrown off and the Messiah sits upon his throne in all of his glory. So in chapter 1, we see the angel Gabriel announce to the humble virgin that she will bear the Messiah. We see her rejoice in the character of her God. And we also see this whole story, this whole narrative, interspersed with that of John the Baptist. But the Mariocentrism of Luke chapter 1 dissipates when you get to Luke chapter 2, which is where we kind of see the birth of the Messiah. It says this in the first few verses. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree 
that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their town to register. Now, this sounds pretty basic, doesn't it? The emperor calls for a census and everyone has to go to their own town to register. It's pretty uneventful. But the issue is that registering meant you had to pay hefty taxes and you had to spend money to get home. So this causes significant hardship for people, especially those who are poor and sick. But the motivation behind calling a census is most likely that Caesar Augustus wanted a shot of pride in the arm. He wanted to hear how many people lived under his rule. So right here in these first few verses of chapter 2, you see that the people in the Roman Empire are living under the tyranny of a prideful ruler. But the text moves on. It says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. So the birth of Jesus is pretty uneventful. But just ponder how different this birth is. Kings are born in palaces with great comfort. They have midwives who attend to the needs of the mother. And they have fresh water and medicine and herbs for healing any pain. This king is born in a cave with little or no care. Now think of the juxtaposition that Luke does between Caesar and Jesus. One is a ruler who sits atop a worldly empire. The other is a baby who lies in a manger. One lives in a palace. The other can't even get into a motel. One has all the power and one has nothing. But one has all the significance in the history of the world. It says this, moving on. This is where it gets interesting. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Now, when you read this, it sounds a little bit random. Jesus has been born already. He is here And yet God wants others to partake of his glory. And he overwhelms these humble shepherds by unveiling a legion of angels to sing praise. And I love the shepherds' response. After they've seen these angels give glory to God, they've been given the announcement from the angel. They're just like, well, let's do this thing. And so they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. 
And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So the, the shepherds here, lowly shepherds, spend their days tending sheep, don't smell good. Lowest of the low. They're the first missionaries in Luke's gospel. They've seen the newborn king for themselves, and they want to give him all the glory and tell everyone what they've seen. And this is significant. We'll see that in a bit. The text moves on to say, uh, there we go. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So Mary gets a little bit of a nod here. And it says that she pondered all of this in her heart. I think Mary saw God's glory revealed in so many ways. And it led her to quietly contemplate all that God had done. God had used this humble peasant girl to bring forth the hope of the world. And she watched as shepherds came to worship her child. It's a marvelous picture of God's glory. Now, there's a lot going on in this text. There's a lot of richness. We could spend hours uncovering all the treasures that are going on in these first couple chapters of Luke. But I just want to make a few observations about this text and draw a little bit of uh, implications from them, too. He reveals his glory because every promise that he makes, he delivers on. The Messiah, long promised for thousands of years, finally comes onto the scene to be born in the most humble of circumstances. And in the midst of Roman oppression, the Messiah, the Savior, is born to provide hope and joy when those things are limited commodities. Mary recognizes this. She recognizes what had been promised about the Messiah. She recognizes who the Messiah is and what he will do. He will bring low the proud and exalt the humble. And she has a front row seat to it all. Thousands of years, they've been waiting for this Messiah to come. And here he is. That's the point of the Christmas story. That's the point of Advent. We wait with Israel for this Messiah who will relieve us all of our oppression. I think Mary also recognized that he reverses the order of the world. This whole narrative is based on reversing the roles that we generally impose upon people. In this story, a revered old man is silenced because of his lack of faith, but a humble peasant girl is given a voice because of her great faith. A savior born in a stable whose kingdom will reign forever is born during the time of a tyrannical emperor whose kingdom will crumble within a few hundred years. Humble shepherds are the first worshipers of the newborn king when it's usually kings and diplomats from other nations who come to worship kings. God signals to the world that his ways are not our ways and that his Messiah will eventually restore and redeem this broken creation back to its original form. He will make brokenness into something beautiful. And one of the great reversals he has made and will make is that he exalts the lowly. As I've mentioned before, we often don't think of Mary as anything to anybody special. She didn't earn God's favor, and that's true. God bestows his grace upon whom he will bestow his grace. But I think there was something special about Mary. I think God favored her because she lacked pride. Because she was humble. She was open to what God would do in her life. And God used her 
to bring his Messiah into this world. God used her to reveal his glory. This whole story, it functions as an exhortation to the proud of this world, the rulers of this world, the oppressors of this world. God doesn't use the proud. He doesn't use proud people. He'll make an example of proud people, but he won't use them in positive ways. He won't use proud people to be vessels for his glory. And this is a trope that you see all throughout Scripture. God exalts those who are humble, and he destroys those with pride. Mary could have had pride. She could have been proud of the fact that God chose her among all the humble little people of the planet to bear his Messiah. And yet she responds with praise to her Lord who deserves all the glory. So what does the story teach us? Other than showing us the glory of the Messiah, how he reverses this world, how he redeems, how he loves the lowly and the downtrodden, what does it teach us? It teaches us to give him the glory. Find your joy and your hope in him and him alone. Whatever God has done for you, thank him for it. Whatever he's given you, bless others with it. And most of all, give him the glory for sending his Messiah so that you can have eternal and abundant life. And some of you in this room, a lot of you in this room have been Christians for a long time. Has that fact just been lost upon you? That's something to think about. And maybe there are some of you in this room who aren't Christians at all, who have heard the Christian story thousands of times, and yet it hasn't penetrated your heart. Maybe today is the day that you commit your life to Jesus Christ, because in him and him alone will you find life abundant and eternal. Glory was promised, as I've said before, thousands of years, children of Israel waiting for their Messiah. And at Christmas time, this thing that we celebrate now, glory has been partially revealed. Jesus came, he died, he rose again for our sins. And if we have faith in him, if we truly believe in him with all of our hearts, we will have life abundant and eternal with him. But glory will be fully revealed. I've said it before. Advent is the time where we wait with the children of Israel anxiously and expectantly for the Messiah to come to this earth. In the midst of all the death, all the famine, all the terrorism, all the war that racks this planet, we're hoping for the Messiah to come back soon, aren't we? But here's what he said to do until he comes back. To celebrate his death. Because in his death, do we find new life. It goes back to this idea of reversing the order of this world. It is through the death of the Messiah that we all have life. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up here. And in a few moments, we're going to invite you to take communion with us. We believe that communion is the time where we remember all that Christ has done, all that he's doing in our lives and will do. I'd encourage you as the band plays, come up here, take a piece of the bread Dip it into the cup. Remember all that Christ has done for you. And maybe this is the time for you to get right with God. If there's something in your heart that's just nagging at you this morning, maybe you need to pray, ask for forgiveness, repent. Maybe you need to go to a brother or sister in this room and ask for forgiveness or forgive that person. Maybe you need to get right with God by trusting him as your savior this morning. Today is the day. Give him the glory. Will you stand with me as we pray?